0: To episode number eighteen uh, of a of a, uh, a Big Sur podcast, and yet again we are departing from uh, what will be the usual subject of this podcast, which is Big Sur centric. But this time we have another neighbor to the north of us that uh, uh, has been gracious to speak with us regarding his expertise. Uh, particularly regarding nuclear arms, which, of course, has been in the news uh, subsequent to the tragedy unfolding in the Ukraine. So that's the reason we spoke with Jeffrey, and uh, I, hope, I hope that some of you will, will enjoy and, and uh, find this interesting uh, to listen to. Thank you.
1: When we're talking about small nuclear weapons today, we are talking about weapons that are the size of the bombs that just that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's really this strange feature of the era we live in um, where we really truly have the power to destroy ourselves, which is very strange for a species. You, again, have this phone that is a portal to this world, and you can just doom scroll and doom scroll and doom scroll. And I think that also affects how those of us in the West experience this conflict. We're not, you know, I think the fundamental question of nuclear war is can we continue to live in a world where we settle disputes with violence?
0: So we're sitting here in Carmel um, at the office in town and I have with me Jeffrey Lewis from the Monterey Institute of International Studies and I think maybe to start with um it'll be great for me to for us to know briefly, Jeffrey, uh, what your what your job is like over there.
1: Well I, I have two jobs. So I'm a professor, which is a very typical professorial like job. I teach classes, but I also have a research appointment, and so I help lead a team of people who use public data to study conflict and particularly the spread of nuclear weapons. So we look at satellite images, we look at social media, uh, all of, we use all of these tools to try to get at the bottom of what's going on in the world.
0: Wow. So, when you say available available uh, resources, you said, but first of all, Jeffrey, thank you so much for talking with me and with us here. Uh, you are, you know, you're one of our neighbors. Uh, this is, of course, a Big Sur podcast, so it's not uh, worldwide yet, but uh, I'm very pleased that you will share with us uh, your knowledge about what I'm going to be talking to you about, I think, mainly is, in fact, the uh, the, uh, the the... Sort of almost unspeakable scenario that we're somehow now faced with. Um, I don't know exactly for the first time, but almost. I don't think we've been this close to at least talking about and feeling a real fear of somebody p- pushing the button. Uh, is that un- is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Um, obviously, whether even if someone doesn't push the button, this is a, a terrible situation. The Suffering in Ukraine is incredible. But it also carries this extra worry or concern because you have uh, one European power in the form of Russia engaged in a large-scale war against another. This isn't a civil conflict or a peacekeeping operation. This is a large country invading another large country. And one of those large countries has nuclear weapons. And those uh, those NATO countries and and other countries that are aiding the Ukrainians then are sort of on the edge of being parties to the conflict, and so there are many ways in which we could imagine this situation spiraling out of control. So while I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the suffering right now, which is considerable and which should be most of our focus. There is this nuclear shadow that looms over everything and that is that is something that has not happened for a while
0: Mm -hmm. and you know um There are a couple of things I thought about when in anticipation anticipation of you talking with us, Um, and one is that we talk about these things um, um, somewhat, sometimes kind of flippantly about tactical nuclear warheads and hydrogen bombs, and people throw around these terms. And just a little education on that would I would love to hear. Uh, Maybe starting with tactical nuclear arms. Can you talk about that a little bit? What is that?
1: Yeah. So the The dirty little secret of my profession is we use a lot of words like tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons, and they don't really exist as a separate category. They really just are nuclear weapons. And so sometimes we use these terms as a sort of shorthand, but it's really important to understand that the categories aren't very distinct. So the U.S. has a a bunch of variants of a gravity bomb called the B-61. Some of those are tactical. Some of them are strategic. They're not really that different from one another. It's just how you plan to use them. So I think when we when you hear the word tactical nuclear weapon, what we're really talking about is a nuclear weapon that would be used in a battlefield context. So, for example, to destroy an airfield that aircraft are operating out of um, or to shoot down an incoming missile. So that's typically what we mean, and, and that I do think helps get at kind of the danger which is right now you have a principally conventional conflict, and we're all worried about the big nuclear conflict, and the kind of connective tissue that links those two things are tactical uses of nuclear weapons where people think that maybe they can fight a limited nuclear war um, only to find
0: out that there is no such thing. Well, so that leads to the question then if you If you talk about a tactical nuclear warhead that uh, presumably exists exists today that could take out like you say like an airport then in in your estimation then with the existing arsenal what kind of a damage uh, outside of the airport long term and short term would it would it would entail would would, would would ensue
1: well one thing is it depends on how close the airport is to a populated area so one of the reasons people who study this like me are very skeptical of these claims of tactical nuclear weapons as a distinct category is if you were to drop a nuclear weapon on the airport in Monterey, that's still surrounded by housing. Um, it's not that far from the urban areas. And of course, uh, accuracy is not always perfect. Um, it really depends on how large the explosion is. But when we're talking about small nuclear weapons today, we are talking about weapons that are the size of the bombs that, just, that destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we're not talking about little teeny tiny things. We're talking about things that are almost incomprehensible in their scale, uh, and they go up from there. So the short-term consequences would be enormous destruction from the blast, um, many people getting sick from radiation, uh, and in some cases uh, a bomb can start a, a kind of uh, a wildfire. Um you know the the fire uh, a firestorm is a fire that creates its own weather. And you know we've we've seen wildfires turn into firestorms, mm-hmm. uh, and nuclear weapons can, in certain circumstances, do that. So you know, there are so many things that can go wrong. Um, you know, it, it can it can be destructive in so many different ways. The long-term effects are not as bad, I think, as we worry. I mean, Hiroshima was, a place that you could live in afterwards, and and today it's a beautiful place, um, but at the same time, the radiation exposure is something that people carry with them for a long time, mm-hmm. uh, and so the legacy of a nuclear use is something that would that we would experience over a long period of time because we would be dealing with people who are continuing to get sick.
0: Mm-hmm. Politically, um, to be tempted then to use a tactical warhead, like for instance, uh, I know this is, I, I actually hesitate to even talk about this, of course, with all due respect and caveats, I, I still still think it's interesting to, to actually open up this can of worms. If there is a tactical uh, warhead used by, uh, by, the, by the Kremlin now, um, what do you think politically that would mean? Well, the first thing
1: is it would be the first nuclear weapon used in a conflict um, since the end of the Second World War. And so that would break a kind of taboo. And, you know, we humans, we're funny creatures. There are things that we believe are possible and things that we believe are impossible. And when that firm dividing line is breached, uh, we tend to go a little crazy. Mm -hmm. It becomes very hard to make sense of the world we're living in. Um, And so one possibility is that people might come to see nuclear weapons as something that can and other people will even say should be used in conflict for military purposes. So that's, you know, one really great risk, I think, of a nuclear weapon being used. The other risk, of course, is that the United States may well respond in kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's always this possibility of escalation.
0: And this is, this is, of course, the area that you have been been uh, working on for many, many years now. Uh, the, the idea that we are internationally trying to uh, I mean, the goal, has have been to dismantle the nuclear arsenal across the globe, correct? That has not worked out. And I, as I found out just recently, the largest arsenal is in Russia. Is that correct?
1: Uh, almost certainly.
0: We yeah. don't really know because
1: the Russians don't publish how many nuclear weapons they have. Uh, the United States, when Democrats are presidents, do publish them. Mm-hmm. So we have some idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but the general thinking is that the U.S. and Russian stockpiles are similar in size, uh, but a little different in composition, and the Russian arsenal is probably a little bit larger. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, in your in your estimation now then... Um, why why in all your years of doing this why hasn't it been what has been the difficulty in in uh, <laughs> this is a, uh, a perhaps naive question but what are the difficulties in dismantling why hasn't it worked
1: well there are no naive questions naive questions are often people asking the uncomfortable question that no one really wants to face which is why we have children and fools because they don't know the consequences of the thing they're asking um The fundamental issue is that we still have a a world where we settle disputes with violence. And that means that countries arm themselves. And while I think nuclear weapons are vastly overrated in how useful they might be, these are still the most powerful explosives we have. And they have come to occupy a certain space in our brain, conveying prestige and power. And so on the one side, there are those of us who say that we have made this tremendous bet with our civilization. We have said, well, we can make war so destructive, so dangerous, um, that it will never happen again, because no one will be so foolish uh, as to ever use these things. You know, those of us who are skeptical of that say, well, that's, that's a quite optimistic bargain to make, um, to believe that humans will always be perfect. But on the other side, there are people who firmly believe that these weapons are the most powerful weapons. They believe that uh, their own country should be armed with the most powerful weapons. And they fundamentally have confidence um, and faith in their leaders to do the right thing, which is a very common nationalistic view. Mm-hmm. You know, My rejoinder would be, I, I don't think Mr. Putin has made very good decisions leading up to this. And I've certainly seen presidents make terrible decisions. So I... I'm a skeptic of the bomb, but it is very difficult to persuade people to let go of the bomb because it also requires letting go of these other notions about what it means
0: to be a powerful country in the world today. And what it means to have the power to, 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 uh, be part of the terror balance, the the balance of terror, the balance of threat? I mean, if you have that in your pocket, it's a little different on the negotiating table. And I think, uh, isn't that uh, another ingredient?
1: Yeah, I think people feel that way. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that it's really true. And I'm also not sure that you really have to have the bombs to have them, to have that power. Um, you know, Sweden is a country that came very close to building a nuclear weapon and then decided not to. Um, but has occupied a very important place in the world system because uh, because Sweden is one of the only non-nuclear countries that really knows how nuclear weapons work. <laughs> um, so I think there are different models for being powerful. But of course, the simplest one is to have more than the other guy.
0: Right. Okay. What are the countries now uh, in the world that, that have uh, uh, nuclear arms? So there are the United States, mm-hmm. Russia, the United Kingdom.
1: France, China, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. South Africa had them when they were an apartheid country, but gave them up mm-hmm. just before they democratized. Mm-hmm.
0: And and in the case of Israel, um, they had a pro- project going on for a long time that was under sort of underground in a, a secret project. Correct.
1: Yes. So, Israel built nuclear weapons in secret. Uh, and it's not a very well kept secret, but the bargain that Israel struck with the United States in the 1970s and has largely kept to is that they don't openly acknowledge possessing those weapons. And it's funny because it's a very implausible kind of deniability, (laughs) uh, but it, it does seem to work. Mm -hmm. It doesn't rub Egypt and Syria and the other countries faces in that fact. Um, and so we've been able to persuade the countries around Egypt, uh, sorry, rather the countries around Israel, not to follow suit. Right, right. So it's it's curious because we all know that they do have them, um, but I, there is some magic in not admitting it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, since we're having this fun conversation, let's continue down another fun path, which is other uh, weapons of mass destruction, which I presume you're also is somewhat interested in, in tracking. Like, what would those be? Well, the two
1: main other weapons of mass destruction that we think about are chemical weapons and biological weapons. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, you have to deliver these things somehow. And there are different ways to do it. You could push a bomb out of a bomber. Um, But missiles are a a very important way that countries think about getting a nuclear weapon from point A to point B. So we also study the spread of missiles very closely. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so what what would they what would those missiles you know presumably contain in a worst case scenario?
1: Well, so the missiles can contain anything. Right now, we've seen Russia use about s- between six and seven hundred missiles with conventional warheads, so just explosives. Uh, we talk about these as though they're small, but we're typically talking about a ton of explosives. Sorry, nobody wants a ton of explosives dropped in their neighborhood. <laughs> Um, but of course they could also carry chemical weapons we saw the government in Syria use chemical weapons as part of an offensive um, and they you know killed a large number of people in uh, the most horrific way in a, a, a Damascus suburb uh, fired, they, fired uh, in this case fired by who against our Syrian government against um, well they Against who is an interesting question. They fired it into a residential neighborhood um, because they wanted to force uh, fighters out of the neighborhood. But, of course, it killed many of the civilians in the neighborhood. Uh, Biological weapons, which are a thing we know well how they work but um, have not been used very frequently. And then, ultimately, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 quite a quite a series of terrible things that you can do with a missile.
0: When you said not very frequently regarding biological weapons, what does that mean? Then there ha- they have been used, uh, and so I would
1: generally say they haven't been used in modern times. I mean, people used to throw plague-ridden carcasses uh, over city walls, um, but we do know that the Soviet Union, in particular, did a lot of research uh, on biological weapons, and there was even an anthrax outbreak in the Soviet Union that came from a leak uh, from a facility that was manufacturing it. So biological weapons are one of these things that we haven't seen used, but we understand well what you could do with them. And so at the moment, they're not really considered a near-term threat. But they are something that we all think about in the long term because we're seeing such immense advances in biology um, that you can imagine a lot of nightmare scenarios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So not a problem yet, but
0: could be one day. On the horizon.
1: Yeah, certainly something people spend a lot of time worrying about. You know, part of our job is not just understanding how bad things are now. Uh, There's a little historical work, understanding how they got so screwed up. Mm -hmm. And there's a little future work understanding how, how much worse they might really get. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking at this uh, little the pandemic we've gone through now and imagining that just, uh, you know, factor of 10 worse, then things would look quite different.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing the ways that we have imagined to kill one another. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at it, as I do in a professional context, um, sometimes you have to sort of step back and really just take it all in. And it it's really this strange feature of the era we live in um, where we really truly have the power to destroy ourselves, which is very strange for a species. Uh, the ability to not just kill one another in small numbers, but to really possibly... And the civilization that we've created, and there are so many different ways we can do it, some by accident. So I, I often think of climate change as as a kind of accidental version of this same problem, which is that we we are so out of proportion to the earth we live on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very big idea to wrap one's head around. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean go. Go real dark there.
0: No, no, that that's good. That's good. I uh, uh, I just drew a blank suddenly because I had something I wanted to follow up with, but it'll come back to me. Um, as far as your your uh, um, teaching your students uh, at at the school uh, in in brief, what are you hoping that those students are going to go out into the world with?
1: Yeah, so these students go, typically work for governments. Mm-hmm. They work for our government in the United States, or they go to home to their own government, and they become diplomats and policymakers or intelligence analysts. They they really could do anything. And so what I hope that we give them is a sense of historical perspective, uh, not just the facts about the job they're going to do. You know, what's a nuclear weapon? How does it work? But a deeper and introspective understanding of how we got where we are, and how we make sense of this situation. And my, my hope is that we're not just training them factually, but that we're helping them have the conceptual tools they need to understand the world and the courage to make different choices
0: when it really matters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So you also said that they were that your research there at the school, besides the uh, teaching, but there's also the research aspect and the development of your own knowledge of course, and the widening of your spectrum but the widening of of your horizons there and those things takes place mainly through what you mentioned was publicly available sources um, first of all, why that limitation and secondly, talk a little bit about. The what seems to me to be inevitable, you are going to poke and, bat- and knock on doors uh, in, in, uh, in your work, I'm sure. Well, what I would say is that
1: the research we do, I'm, I'm quite proud of. Uh, I think it's one of the most innovative things we do. And that involves taking all of this public information and trying to put it to some good use. And the reason I'm proud of it is I lived through the run-up to the Iraq War. And I was surrounded by people, all of whom were skeptical of the claims that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, but none of whom anyone, no one would listen to us. You know, then the media would hear a US government official say, well, trust me. And that was a juicy scoop. And then that was the end of it. That was reality for everyone. And so I really felt that civil society needs to be able to have a way to participate in these discussions, to have... An ability to hold powerful people to account. You know, sometimes powerful people tell the truth. And then if we can show that they're telling the truth, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't. And if we can show that they're not telling the truth, that's also important. Mm -hmm. So we have really developed our ability to use commercial satellite images. um, Not just pictures that you see with your eyes, but radar images that can see through clouds. um, To ingest uh, social media data. Um, there's so many videos of Russian military units, for example, on TikTok. <laughs> it's, it's really one of the most valuable sources we have. Um, you know, and it's not just for silly dances. And, and we try to take all of these sources of data uh, and fuse them together to come up with an accurate picture uh, of the world we're in. And, you know, sometimes it makes people angry. Uh, We have definitely published things that I know governments, including the United States government, are not happy about, but that's not my concern. My my concern is having good research method and telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And if there are consequences to that, well, I still get to live here.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, with the exception, perhaps, that uh, telling the truth can sometimes... Threaten the national security, let's say, that those scenarios could, of course, occur.
1: Well, yes. Um, But in general, I'm someone who thinks that in a democratic society, uh, we are stronger if we have a public debate and that debate is based on facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we have never really run into a situation where we've discovered something that was secret, where we really felt that it would be better not to disclose it. Uh, On the contrary, most of the things we've discovered that the government doesn't want people to know about, uh, we feel really strongly, should have been public. And the one that pops to mind is we discovered a facility for producing ballistic missiles in Saudi Arabia. And as we analyzed that facility, we came to the conclusion it was almost certainly built by the Chinese. And we announced this, and it was in the Washington Post. And a few months later, uh, some members of Congress got very angry about this and began to press the Trump administration. And the Trump administration admitted that, yes, China had built such a plant for Saudi Arabia and that they had not been planning to tell Congress. Hmm. So what we did, I guess, was contrary to how the Trump administration thought about national security. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't contrary to how I think about it.
0: Right, I can just, only just to be a devil's advocate. I can yeah. think about um, uh, you know the, the the current social media being available, so during mm-hmm. the during the missile cri- the crisis in Cuba at that time to have like a, a, a plebiscite or a, or a or a survey of the American people, what shall we do? Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of scenarios are a little different.
1: Well, I don't know. You know, in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Kennedy administration declassified those photographs to show them at the United Nations. Right. And so one of the things I think that civil society could usefully have done uh, is to provide a second pair of eyes, um, and which can be incredibly powerful because one of the issues we deal with is we don't just focus on the United States. And satellite images, particularly classified ones, are often used by big powers, to tell little powers what's happening. But many countries don't have the ability to interpret those images, to understand what they're seeing. And so a lot of the education and training we do in in the rest of the world is about helping small countries know how to make sense of this information that big countries are often showing them. So I think in the case of the Cuban Missile Crisis, it would have been a good thing um, because they were right. And I think those of us on the outside would have said, "Yes, they're right. They really are." But the but, are. But,
0: but then again, maybe no. It's what I'm saying because the fear, the fear of, of making the wrong decision, can sometimes, from people who are not, uh, you know, involved in the situation, mm. uh, be based on on uh, you know very very <laughs> scant resources.
1: Well, I think that ultimately comes down to a theory of government. Yeah, and. You have to make a choice. And I am just someone who I, I lived in Washington long enough, uh, that I'm not all that impressed. <laughs> and I think that having a robust and open public debate on average will lead to better outcomes. Yeah. I can't say that it will always lead to better outcomes, but but I can say that when I think about the failures that we have experienced in our foreign policy as a country, it is almost always accompanied, by a man on a stage saying, "Trust me," right. <laughs> so, but I agree that's a theory of government, you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to ascribe to it. it's mm-hmm. just it's how I look at
0: the world. yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Now, um you know, I think we both uh, have read uh, and I think we're we're mutual friends of of Eric Schlosser, who wrote the book command and control, which was dealing with the American nuclear arsenal primarily or almost exclusively. And I, I don't know exactly if the book ends with, but I think that I'm not too far off when I say that the, bo- the book ends with a book then that that describes several near misses and some, some rather big holes in the security in certain places, in certain aspects of the American arsenal. And then the book ends by saying... And this was about the United States, dot, 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 meaning then that one wonders what the security is like in places like Russia that has even more nuclear arsenal. So talk about that for a minute.
1: Well, I love Eric. I mean, one of the great joys of living where we do is it's beautiful, but there are also real local characters who are incredible. (laughs) So the idea that our local author is Eric, and one can pop down to Carmel Bell and get a coffee (laughs) with him is really one of the great uh, indulgences of of living in this beautiful place. Um, You know, this, the way that Eric handled that is, I think, a very sophisticated way of thinking about nuclear risk, which is that we can Look at the United States because there's a lot of transparency, and we can see how often we made mistakes and how often things went wrong. You know, the United States has lost nuclear weapons that have not been recovered. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been terrifying near misses. There have been awful misunderstandings, and we know about those things because we have a relatively open and transparent society, and. If you learn those lessons, what I think you fundamentally learn is that people are not perfect. People make mistakes. And I think we know that in societies that are more closed and that punish people more severely for speaking truth to power, not that it's all that much fun in the United States, (laughs) but it's less fun in Russia, Mm -hmm. that they are naturally going to struggle with the same problems that we do. Um, It's just that we won't hear about them and they may well have... Bigger challenges because of their own cultures of secrecy. So, the, in a way, the United States, it's a little bit like we pick up this one rock and we see all these bugs. Mm-hmm. But then when you put it down, you realize there are other
0: rocks. Mm-hmm. And that means that there are also bugs there. We just can't see them. <laughs> and and thanks to uh eric for instance and others um and you spoke of the open or relatively open media perhaps there is at least a chance that some of these things will be remedied and improved upon thanks to that that openness
1: yeah i think so i mean america is a work in progress yeah. uh, and and i look at the progress we've made on some of these issues but then i also look at the progress we haven't made Um, And I I try to focus on accomplishments, and there have been some serious accomplishments. So, um, you know, the United States was able at the end of the Cold War to assist Russia in eliminating an enormous number of Soviet nuclear weapons. Um, And so even if we squandered that opportunity, um, there was an opportunity, and for a while, uh, we made the most of it. and what I what I hope is that if we understand that history correctly, and we understand our current predicament correctly, um, someday an opportunity like that will come again, and, and it's my hope uh, that it'll be my students in a position of authority, mm-hmm. uh, and that they won't squander it as we did. Mm-hmm.
0: So you mentioned before we started talking, you mentioned that you were at the uh, at the office, and uh, you were watching some imagery because I thought we'd bring it back to the the current crisis in the Ukraine. Uh, tell me about what happened this morning.
1: Well, uh, I don't know is the short answer. You've caught me in the middle of an analysis. But we, we have a satellite image uh, from uh, Belarus. And there are vehicles that have canisters on them. And canisters usually have missiles. And those canisters are pointing straight up into the air. And so we're currently debating what are we looking at. Are we looking at air defense missiles uh, to shoot down aircraft? Are we looking at offensive missiles that will be fired into Ukraine? Or are we looking at rubber inflatables that are meant to fool annoying spy satellites? And that requires bringing to bear a lot of evidence, whether it's TikTok videos of people driving by or radar images to see if those things are really metal and And I I have to honestly tell you, and it's the best part of my job. Right now, I don't know. (laughs) And and it is such a joy and a privilege to work in a job where you get to see something like this. And it is absolutely a mystery. You know, it is a puzzle where all the pieces are lying in a pile. Mm -hmm. And and we spent this morning, and we'll probably spend this afternoon, Mm -hmm. slowly clicking those pieces into place. Wow. But I don't know what the cover looks like. I don't know when it's all put together, right. whether it's going to be a, a, a cat or a, a
0: boat or a house on a beach. Right. You know, um, Jeffrey, it's wonderful to speak with you. You have such a, um, at least right now, you have such a, uh, uh, and I haven't met you many times, but there is an, a sort of um, fundamental optimism and and joie de vivre that comes out of you. And in, in the context of the thing that you work with, it's a little, um, uh, it's it's a good thing, of course, but it also um how how do you uh, what what kind of advice do you give to to others that are getting themselves bogged down yeah. in this in this barrage of media and and painful imagery
1: well so one thing is history is a helpful guide people are awful to one another there has never been a moment in human history where there hasn't been something awful happening mm-hmm. and You know, like, there is a lot of great literature that is going to be much better about this than I will be at the moment. But I do think the foundation of great literature is how do you experience joy even amidst suffering? Because suffering is just part of of the world we're in. When I think specifically about nuclear weapons, what I always say is, I I don't expect a nuclear war tomorrow. I look at the choices we're making, and I think as a long-term bet, it seems very unwise to me. Um... But I I don't wake up thinking, oh, today's the day, right? I wake up thinking there's a very small risk and we should do what we can to drive that risk lower and lower and lower. And so I think if you take the world one day at a time and you see what you can do that day, Mm -hmm. um, that's a much better way. I mean, it's good to be strategic, but you can't fix all of the world's problems in a single day. And so I find having meaningful work that I think makes a difference and a contribution really allows me to focus on the task at hand and have some optimism that when I look back on all of it, it will have
0: added up to something. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is the, what is the, uh, I guess two more things I want to talk to you about. One is the, your personal journey uh, before you ended up at the, at the school here, just when in your life did this particular path sort of emerge for you personally that you were going to work with this particular uh, subject?
1: Well, it started when I was very young. I was a research assistant at a place called the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., and I just, there were a lot of security issues one could work on, and for some reason, nuclear weapons and missiles appealed to me. Um, they appealed to me, I guess, because they're a little bit technical, and I find that kind of fascinating, but they also appealed to me because they get at the really big questions, Um you know, I think the fundamental question of nuclear war is, can we continue to live in a world where we settle disputes with violence? And that's a really foundational question, right? Mm -hmm. Can, can, can we change Mm -hmm. as a, as a civilization or not? And I loved that. I love that connection of the very minute arcane technical detail, but ultimately the important, profound philosophical questions about what this life is about. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I always was interested in it, and it's one of those things where when you know a little bit, you suddenly know more than other people, so you get invited to better meetings, and pretty soon I was the nuclear guy, and once you're the nuclear guy, there you don't, you're in. You don't, you can't escape, uh, but I'm, I'm very lucky that I've been able to spend the last decade as the nuclear guy here yeah. and not in D.C. because we have better weather, <laughs> better food, and better. Well, I don't want to say better people, but boy, I like living here. Yeah.
0: And and we're so glad that you're talking with us now. Um, um, You did mention um, literature and art as part of uh, some sort of f- fundamentals for you personally. So, as yeah, a yeah,
1: you know any famous writers
0: <laughs> lived here? I, like do, Big Sur. I do, I do not. No. But if, if you have a, if you have a, some kind of some thought about that, since we we do ha- we do come from the Henry Miller Library here, and we have books in a bookstore there. What books in the, again maybe in this context uh, in your personal life? What books do you think we should have? Two or three or four titles on our bookshelves.
1: Well, for my existence, I love Camus' uh, The Plague, Mm -hmm. um, which is not really about nuclear war. But what is so fascinating about that book to me is the idea that even amidst suffering, there are some winners, some people who like the suffering more um, and for whom the end of the suffering is actually a disappointment And when we're dealing with conflict among countries, the idea that there are winners and losers and that a better situation for most people might still leave some very powerful people unhappy, I think is a tremendously important insight. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are many great classic nuclear war novels, right? So there's on the beach. uh, Yes. uh, You can't go wrong with that. Um, and I'm doing everything I can to restrain myself from mentioning my own novel. Mm, so please do. But I, I I wrote a novel called The 2020 Commission, which was about a fictional North Korean nuclear attack on the United States, which was really intended to get at some of these bigger issues. Um, it's not really just about North Korea, it's not really just about nuclear weapons, it's about how world leaders can foul a situation up, um, even when they're trying not to. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That was very selfish of
0: me. Not at all. I'm so glad you did. That's what happens. You, 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 you scratch an yeah. author Tra- and you get a circus impresario. So, um, oh, in Eric's book, what am I doing?
1: Command and control. Obviously command and control. It's because we talked about it earlier. I didn't yeah, put it on the yeah, list. Yeah, but, yeah. but that is Eric is the rare author who somehow wrote a single book that is, in fact, three different books, mm-hmm. um, each of which are magnificent in their own way.
0: Yeah. Um, so, I would, How do you see it being three different books? Explain.
1: Well, so one third, I shouldn't say third, but one of the books is a very useful meditation on the nuclear age. So he has to introduce a bunch of factual material. That's always a challenge for authors. He does it in a very adroit way. Um, that I think would be very compelling for someone who didn't know anything about nuclear weapons. The bulk of the book is an account of the explosion of an ICBM in Damascus, Arkansas, which reads like a thriller. Um, I have often teased him that if I could just get that those sections of the book bound, I would read that five or six times, like all by itself. So he's already written a wonderful historical nonfiction book and a thriller and then just to just to rub our noses in how great he is the last third of the book has an enormous amount of research he did on some of the safety issues with nuclear warheads that is a genuine piece of scholarship that uh, maybe it's not a full book length but would would have passed muster as a scholarly article Mm -hmm. so in a in a single book uh eric demonstrated that he could do these three really different things you know, historical nonfiction, thriller writing, and um, historical, I, I don't know what you call it, but, but deep scholarly
0: research.
1: Uh, and it just, that's amazing. I love that
0: book. He's great. He's great. great. Okay, so one one more opportunity here. I can... Uh... Um, it's a tough one. But um, we didn't talk, and purposely so, I didn't want to talk about the the crisis in Ukraine in terms of the politics and the ins and outs of that conflict. But, but still, one question, though, since you are obviously involved in this, um, some kind of hopeful scenario, can you think of one?
1: Sure. The hopeful scenario is that the conflict seems to have ground into a kind of stalemate. And it is possible that Vladimir Putin will realize that he cannot win on the battlefield, and that the only way forward for him would be to completely destroy the country that he hopes to occupy. And so, what I'm hoping is that if he comes to that realization, that he will look for a face-saving way out. And uh, while I'm sure that would be hard for some people in Ukraine to accept. Um, I do think that there is the possibility that Ukraine could make some small compromises, um, not not the ones he's asking for right now. Let me be clear. He's asking for far too much publicly. But I'm hopeful that the Ukrainian government will find a way to allow him a face-saving way to go home um, that is still consistent with their own security over the long run. Uh, And I don't want to negotiate that for them. That's for them to decide, not for me. Um, But I do think the reality of the situation is now that we are approaching what appears to be a stalemate. uh, Cooler heads may well prevail. uh, And if we can get the Russians to go home, uh, we can then start the task of rebuilding Ukraine. Mm.
0: Um, the sort of the paradigm shift I called it, when the media now is so ubiquitous in in so many different ways as well, uh, compared to the the, so the previous large conflagrations that we had cert, have had certainly in the West. So you were saying, well, I I was saying one reason I think our politics have become so
1: difficult and so poisonous is that social media allows people to retreat into their own information bubbles if that's what they wish to do. And that's what a lot of people like to do. They want to be told what they think is true and they really don't want to experience contrary information. They don't want to struggle with new information. And there's actually a lot of good social science that suggests when you do present people with contrary information, they only find it threatening and they retreat deeper into their own beliefs. Um, So I worry about that problem fundamentally. And one of the places we saw it was in the run-up to the invasion. So I was working with satellite imagery. And so to me, it was obvious that there was going to be an invasion because I could see the tanks and the armored personnel carriers and the hospitals and the helicopters and the airplanes. And it was a ring of death and steel surrounding Ukraine. And it was just I could not imagine there would not be an invasion given what I was looking at. People I know and respect, so I'm I'm not mocking these people, I respect these people who don't look at satellite imagery, but who deal with the cultural piece, talking to Russian leaders, thinking about how Russian leaders view the world. They were absolutely convinced there would not be an invasion. And it was just so striking to me how these Distinct information environments led us to these completely diametrically opposed opinions. And so, you know, my hope is that those of us who work in this field, we're trying to bring the satellite images out and try to break down those bubbles. Uh, but boy, those bubbles are strong. And and that, I think, really drives a lot of how hard it is for us to talk to other people because we have so much information that supports what we already want to believe that it becomes so easy to just turn off and then go down whatever rabbit
0: hole you want. And sometimes those rabbit holes are designed by someone with ill intent.
1: Well, or sometimes,
0: sometimes the rabbit
1: holes are designed by people with ill intent. Sometimes the rabbit holes are designed by corporations seeking to make money. So I absolutely encounter the experience of being on YouTube, looking for some kind of video related to my research, and then I see a portal into conspiracy theories. And if you click on one of those things, you will be served endless conspiracy theories of that ilk, and then you'll get other conspiracy theories that are related. And I see how easy it would be for someone... uh, to fall down that rabbit hole. It it reminds me of the old
0: joke. You want to be open-minded, mm. but not so open-minded that your brains fall out. Closing. But we mentioned, or I mentioned, that this particular war then is is being fought, uh, as we speak, with this new media paradigm. Just, Do you have any kind of comment about that specifically?
1: Sure. Yeah. First, one of the reasons I think that you have seen such a strong international reaction, which by the way, the Russians did not expect. But the reason I think the international reaction has been so strong is because the open source evidence has been so overwhelming. You know, in the old days, the Biden administration might have said, Russia's building up a giant invasion force, and the Russians would have said, No, we're not. And and then you you have no way of knowing the truth. The Biden administration, I think, instead has been very effective in releasing their own satellite images and in making claims about what's happening. And then suddenly the journalists can verify that with the open information. And so it's created a very one-sided media war where one side is seeming to be extremely truthful. And I think that's driving this. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is, I, I think it is bizarre. We, we have this, I mean, this is like the first, you can doom scroll through this war. You know, you have a phone in your pocket that is a portal to this enormous well of suffering. And so you can see all kinds of social media videos. You can see satellite imagery. You can get data, whether it's uh, people talking or making announcements. Um, I actually watched the military operation at the nuclear power plant. I watched it on the nuclear power plant's webcam. And so You, again, have this phone that is a portal to this world, and you can just doom scroll and doom scroll and doom scroll. And I think that also affects how those of us in the West experience this conflict. We're not, we are certainly seeing the suffering. We're seeing the Russian troops. It is available to us in a way I think that no other war
0: ever has been. Right. And I think we will need some wisdom from from good people to... Help one another to to stay away uh, perhaps or to deal with it in, in, in a in a good way because it could of course lead to a bunch of not suffering in re- relative to what's happening in Ukraine of course but but you know in people's minds in the, in the home or in the home here in, in the United States people get depressed yeah you have to find joy even amidst suffering yeah.
1: that's not a cliche that you can't deal with all the terrible things in the world unless you have a reservoir of emotional strength. And that comes from love and a sense of community and a sense of purpose. And so I think it is incredibly important every day that I put my phone down for many hours. You know, watch a movie, make dinner, talk to a real person. Don't talk about this. And it's not that you're ignoring It's that you have to take a break and you have to make sure that your own emotional reserves are full so that then you can help other people. It's a little bit like when you're on a plane Mm -hmm. and they say, put your mask on first. (laughs) They're not encouraging you to be selfish. They just want you to get your mask on so you can help the people around you. So put your phone down and then put your mask on first.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey. This has been amazing. Can you, uh, any other final comment you'd like to make? I love the Henry Miller Library. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I always say yes to anything that you invite me to. I think one of the real pleasures of living where we do is that we have this wonderful history here, and it's so wonderful that we care about it, and that we curate it, and that we protect it, and that we live it. Because there are a lot of great places where famous people lived that lose that and so I'm, I'm really grateful for all you do to keep that alive in our community thank you
0: alright alright ah,